Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks so much, uh, Kennedy. Can you all hear me okay without that, um, without that mic? Uh, uh, it seems a little boomy, so um, if, as long as you can hear me in the back, uh, we should be good. Um, so there's an outline for the lecture, um, uh, a reasonably detailed outline. Uh, and also, I, um, I asked that the, the Nicene Creed be distributed, so, um, so I hope you've got that too. Um, I see at least one person has it, has both, okay? Because um, uh, what we're going to do is really look uh, with some care at some passages uh, in the Nicene Creed. That'll be the sort of guts of this uh, lecture, will be a close reading of some passages uh, in the Creed. Um, I want to say it's a really uh, great pleasure to be here. Um, I've never been to MSU before. As I was explaining to Kennedy, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, so MSU to me has always been Michigan State University, and I was a big, uh, big fan of Michigan State football way, way back in the day, okay, in the, in the 1960s. Um, it was my, my first uh, great uh, sports loyalty was to MSU, but to Michigan State, not to uh, Mississippi State. Now, I think I might be better off these days, you know, being a Mississippi State fan, but um, uh, there it is. Uh, so it's really a pleasure to be here. I was able to get in last night and, and spend the day here and uh, to see your lovely uh, campus and meet some of the, some of the folks. So it's a real, been a real pleasure for me. Um, so I was asked by the, um, by the Thomistic Institute organizers to, uh, to give a talk on the Trinity, uh, on understanding the Trinity. So that's, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and uh, I want to begin uh, by observing the importance of the question. The Trinity is for Christians, for Catholics, but not only for Catholics. The Trinity is for Christians who God is. The Trinity is the Christian God, or as the Romans used to say, the God of the Christians. When Christianity first appeared on the scene in the Roman world in the first century, around the Mediterranean, uh, in what is today Turkey, Greece, uh, Italy, uh, and so forth, Christianity was strange to the Romans. They didn't know what sort of religion it was. And they wanted to find out. And so they would grab hold of some Christians and say, who do you worship? Who is your God? Who is the Deus Christianorum, okay? The God of the Christians. 
And the answer was very clear. It was clear from the beginning. It's already in the Bible, in the New Testament, very clearly, um, and in many witnesses uh, of the earliest uh, generations after uh, the apostles and after the, uh, the completion of the New Testament. The God of the Christians is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These three are the one God of the Christians. The Romans didn't understand this. They also felt threatened by it because to have this God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as your God is not to have the semi-divine emperor as your God. It is not to offer tribute in his his chapels and his temples throughout the Roman world. Um, It is not to participate in the religion that binds the Roman Empire not just the Romans themselves, but all the peoples that they have, uh, have subjected. The religion that binds the Roman Empire together is a basically, at the emergence of Christianity, a worship of the emperor, and the Christians would not do it. Our God is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the God of the Romans. So the God of the Christians is this one. You see this in the New Testament. For example, among many passages that are are pertinent, um, as a as a friend now departed from this life, a theologian and a, a mentor to me uh, said a long time ago, the Trinity is on every page of the New Testament. Okay, just open it to every any page and put your finger down, and I'll show you without much difficulty how the Trinity is there, how the Father, Son, and Spirit are interacting on the pages of the New Testament. But two texts of great importance that are, are you know, classic significance here um, are the Lord's command at the end of the Gospel of Matthew when he appears uh, to the eleven uh, on the mountain in Galilee and they worshipped him. They treated him as God, but some of them doubted. And he says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Or at the end of 1 Corinthians, okay, I gave the, the reference in the outline, Paul concludes his greeting uh, to the Corinthians uh, by saying, The grace of God, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we we know that, that blessing from uh, our contemporary uh, worship after 20 uh, centuries. So why is the Trinity important? Why is thinking about the Trinity important? Well, because the Christian God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian God is not just any God. Thomas Aquinas, um, after whom the Thomistic Institute is named, okay, we're going to have some uh, reference to St. Thomas, if we're going to have a Thomistic Institute lecture. Thomas Aquinas says in a beautiful passage from one of his shorter writings, the Christian faith consists above all in the confession of the Holy Trinity. And it glories especially in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Trinity and the cross and the, the connection or the intersection of the two That, St. Thomas says, and he's not saying anything unusual here or anything that is peculiar to him or unique to him, the Trinity is the heart of the Christian faith. Everything else we believe 
about how we should live, about what's good, about what our destiny is as human beings, all of it, everything that, that we talk about in, in church every day, that all goes back in one way or another to the confession of the Holy Trinity. It's this God who is the beginning and the end of all things, who is the source and the goal, another way of saying the same thing, of all things. And of course, especially of us who can know and love this triune God. So faith in the Trinity is not a kind of add-on to Christianity. Okay? It's not that you can have faith in a kind of generalized God or an undifferentiated God or just a single God and then say that's what's really at the heart of the matter and then yes we Christians do sometimes talk about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now I'm an adult convert to Christianity. I was grew up in a, in a quite secular house and, and never darkened the door of a church until I was 19. Um, and I, I must admit, you know, I had, I had a little bit of trouble with this. I, you know, all right, so there's God, right? You, 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 I mean, I knew nothing, all right? I mean, I, I, was, I was completely innocent, all right? So you all believe in God, right? Except I didn't say you all then because I hadn't lived in Texas for 23 years. Um, my adoptive and beloved home, okay? I'm going to die in Texas. I wasn't born there, but I got there as soon as I could, all right? Um, so you believe in God. I you know, would ask my, my Christian friends as I was starting to enter into the faith, so that's the Father, right? And I said, yeah. And then, but what about the Son and the Spirit? I mean, how many gods do you believe in? And they said, well, you know, it's all the same God. Okay, but they're not the same as each other, right? I, mean, I don't think so, but I don't worry about it too much, okay? Um, so from a very early point, I mean, um, uh, you know, when I was, when I was entering and converting and even before my baptism, I started to worry about this. And not worry in the sense of being anxious about it, but in the sense of wanting to think about it. The Christian God is three and yet one. And I sensed that there was some profound truth in this that I had to try to understand. It's not just an add-on, like you, you can think about that if you want, but, but all you really need to do is believe in God, all right? And our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters are very clear with us that they don't see it as an add-on, okay? Both Jews and Muslims have traditionally held that Christians do not believe in the one God, okay? That Christians are not truly monotheists. As Muslims like to put it, this goes back to the early days of Islam, Christians associate with God, with the one God, they associate another, a son. But God has no associates, right? So Muslim teaching has for many centuries maintained. God is just one. And the Christian response from the beginning was, no, God has no associates. There are no co-gods. But God is these three. The one God, we are, despite what you might want to think, we do believe in one God, but we believe in one God who is these three, 
So how can this be? This is the, the fundamental question for Christian faith in the Trinity, is how do we understand our basic conviction that these three, Father, Son, and Spirit, just are the one God, and that that is what is distinctive to, unique to Christianity and to Christian faith. We don't just believe in a single God. We believe in this one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So from an early point in the history of Christianity, I gave you an early point in my own history, but from an early point in the history of Christianity, right from the beginning, already you can see this in the, in the generations immediately after the apostles, uh, in the second century, in the 100s, Christians are starting to think about this. How are the Father and the Son related? How is the Son God with the Father how shall we understand this? That's what we'll be talking about for the rest of the time. But I just want to be clear that, that Christians have thought from the beginning that this was not a matter that they could just set aside. When the Lord says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we could just say, well, we don't really understand that, but we'll just go on. Okay? So the Christian faith has had from a very early point an impulse that we have to try to to enter into this mystery in a deeper way with the mind as well as with the heart. Okay? The Lord says, after all, you shall love the Lord your God. Now, this is the Son telling us to love the Father, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So your heart and your mind have to enter into this. So how shall we understand with our minds, how shall we grasp more deeply the faith that we profess the faith, for example, with which every Catholic Mass begins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a hugely important gesture, okay? Right there, I mean, if you're a Jew or a Muslim, you're going to run out the door, all right? Because that is the Christian faithful gathered together saying, this is the God that we are gathered in the name of. This is the God we worship, not just any God, but this God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, the confession of the Trinity in its most basic and authoritative form in the Christian tradition is the Nicene Creed, okay? um, which you have in front of you uh, in its current Catholic translation. Okay? Now, I want to say a little bit about the creed and then about how the creed came to be. So now we're at point two in the outline. I want to say a little bit about how the creed came to be and then we're going to look more carefully at some important passages in the creed. Now every Sunday, Catholics and other Christians, not all other Christians, but uh, many other Christians besides Catholics, every Sunday get up um, after the homily, right, and recite the Nicene Creed. Um, how much thought do we give to it when we spew out these words, okay? Um, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying, uh, what does the, the missal say? Or what does the priest say before we make this confession of faith? The priest says, 
let us profess our faith. Okay? This is what we believe. And this is what we should be willing to die for. Faith in this God. Let us profess who the God is that we worship, who the God is that we serve, who the God is that we are willing, if called upon, even to give up our life for. What do we then go on to say? We go on to say a creed that was composed a long time ago in the four fourth century, in the 300s. In the fourth century, there was, and I'll be very brief here, um, happy to go into as much detail as you like um, in, the, in the Q&A. Um, but in the fourth century, there was a very heated debate in the Christian community about, in particular, it was about the Trinity, but it was more specifically and focally about the divinity of Christ. Is Jesus Christ, is the human being Jesus, right, we're talking about a human being here, but is this human being at the same time true God? Or is this human being, who is according to Scripture, as all agreed, the Logos, the Word of God, who has become flesh, right, from the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, is this word who has become flesh, and therefore this human being, is this word true God? And therefore Jesus, who is the one whom this word has become, is Jesus true God? And there were a number of Christians. They were called, I knew I was going to need the board here because I didn't put this in my outline. They were called Arians because they're... Uh, don't worry, no one else can read my handwriting either. Um, their, their initiator was a priest from Alexandria named Arius, um, who was a smart guy, but, um, but he held that, um, no, the, the word who became flesh, the word of, of, of Scripture, of the, of the Gospel of John in particular, who became flesh, the word whom we look to for salvation, the incarnate word whom we look to for salvation, Jesus Christ, is not true God. And the Catholic Church responded to him, the undivided church of East and West responded to him and said, uh, yes, he is. And if he is not, then we are worshiping an idol and we are looking for salvation to a creature who cannot save, only God can save. So the early church, in the, third, in the fourth century in particular, in the 300s, strongly insisted that Jesus Christ must be understood to be true God, fully God, as much God as the Father is God. And the Nicene Creed here is the result of a very intense century of debate and reflection about this, about how to say this, about how to think through and understand our faith in the Trinity, but especially our faith in the Father, Son, and Spirit, but especially our faith in Jesus Christ as true God no less God than the Father is. Now, there were two creeds composed in the, in the fourth century, in the 300s. And then you have the dates there in your, in your outline. This is a little confusing um, because there was a council at Nicaea in the very first ecumenical council of the Catholic uh, Church, also recognized by the Orthodox churches, uh, in the year 325 under the Emperor Constantine. Um, 
which held that, in language similar but not identical to that which you have in the creed in front of you, that Jesus Christ is true God consubstantial with the Father. Okay? But then this a great debate broke out about this. Was this, in fact, the right decision? Was this the right way to think about it? And there was much effort. There were many followers of Arius who said, well, all right, you can say true God, but not in quite the same way that the Father is true God. So uh, a lesser God in some sense. And so there's a, a 50 to 75 years of very intense debate about this. And the outcome of that debate then was the, if you like, the revised creed of the Council of Constantinople of 381. So we call this the Nicene Creed, but it's actually the Constantinopolitan Creed, but that's a lot to say. And in fact, it's sometimes called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is even uh, more to say. So we just, we just say the Nicene Creed, all right? But what the crucial point we need to, need to emphasize um, is that this creed has been seen since ancient times has been uttered in you know, literally thousands of languages all over the world since the fourth century by Christians as the fundamental profession of their faith in who God is. Some of the language of the creed is not directly biblical. This was a point of controversy in the fourth century debates. But the church has long insisted that the creed's content is thoroughly biblical, that it is a, an articulation, the creed is an articulation and a spelling out of the biblical teaching on who God is on the Trinity. So now I want to look, I hope so, so far so good, I hope we're not moving, moving too quickly. So now I want to look, um, and here things maybe get a little more, uh, a little more uh, technical, uh, but only a little at the text of the creed, at what I take to be three, not, not just any three, but the three fundamental claims that the creed wants to make, which when you take them together, add up to or constitute the church's faith in the Trinity. So the creed begins, as I imagine we all know, I believe in one God. Okay? So that's the first really crucial and fundamental point that the creed wants to make. There's only one God. Who is this one God? The creed tells us. We say it when we confess the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Okay? So we've already done two important things. We've insisted that there is a single God, and we have specified or located this God as the Father, and as the Creed will shortly go on to say, the Father of Jesus Christ. Okay? So the one God is the Father. That's indispensable and non-negotiable point one. Second point, or B on the outline, this is where things become more involved. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And then there are a couple of lines of great importance, but we'll skip those for the moment. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll skip three lines, because it, it, it attributes some things to the one Lord Jesus Christ. It, it characterizes him in a variety of ways. The only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. And then skipping a line, true God from true God. So the second fundamental claim of the creed, which you shouldn't pass over lightly when you, when you, when, I shouldn't say you as though I don't do it too. When we mumble through it on Sunday um, uh, morning, shouldn't pass over lightly. You are saying that you believe this human being is true God. This human being, born of a Jewish girl in the first century, you know, dirtied his diapers, uh, did all the human things that all of us do, suffered the human things that we suffer. This human being is true God. That's the second fundamental claim of the creed. And again, that's the, the outcome of this intense debate with, between the Catholic or Nicene party of, of the fourth century and the Arians. Jesus Christ is true God, nothing less than true God. And similarly, the creed goes on to say, now toward the bottom, when we get to the article on the Holy Spirit, so two paragraphs from the end of the pages in front of you, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Now, for interesting reasons, it doesn't say that the Holy, it doesn't say explicitly here that the Holy Spirit is true God. We could talk more about that. But Lord and giver of life is equivalent to true God. Only the true God can be the Lord and giver of life. Okay? And in particular, the assignment of the term kurios in Greek, or Lord, to a, to a party, okay, to an individual, means you're, you're, you're saying that that one is God. All right? So the human being Jesus is true God, and the, the creed of 381, which is the, the Nicene Creed that we say in church, adds, which was not said in 325, that the Holy Spirit is Lord and giver of life, and therefore true God, as both the Father and the Son are. So the second fundamental point, the human being Jesus and the Holy Spirit are true God. Now there is, of course, biblical background to this. What is Doubting Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, say to Jesus when he sees him risen from the dead and the Lord invites him to, it's a very graphic scene, invites him to reach into his wounded side and feel his beating heart. Believe that it is I. And what does Thomas say to him? My Lord, right? And my God. Or when St. Paul uh, sings a hymn to Christ, which seems quite uh, likely to have already been used in the church before Paul himself wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God. So Jesus Christ is equal to God, but he did not grasp his equality with God. Rather, he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, even to death on a cross. And because of this, 
God has bestowed on him the name above every other name. And what name is that? Fred? Connor? There are like 12 Connors in the room. Okay. No, it's Curios, the Lord, okay, God. It's the name of God that is bestowed uh, on Jesus Christ by the Father. So, second crucial point. The Father is the one God, and at the same time, the human being, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are true God. Third crucial point, which will unpack more in just a moment. It may seem rather abstract, but it's really crucial. Jesus Christ is not the Father. He is other than the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or Jesus Christ. He is other than the Father and Jesus. Differently put, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, are not three different names for one and the same thing. Okay, like an actor might play three different characters. Okay, I'm trying to think of a good example, but none, none comes to me offhand. Okay, um, I don't go to movies much, so I don't know what three characters you might think of Brad Pitt as having played, or Angelina Jolie, I guess they go together, right? Um, uh, uh, but that's not what we're talking about, okay? It's not as though these three are really one and the same thing, just they take on different names at different times or for different purposes. No, they are really distinct from one another. So these three claims, which are very explicit in the creed, there's one God the Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are true God, and that Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same as each other. They are in some way which the creed does not spell out, although theological reflection has spelled it out in detail, they are in some way distinct from one another. And you can see this in the clearest way. For example, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, with you all things are possible. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, at least at some level, it's not my will, or I'm inclined to resist this. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Right? Well, who is Jesus talking to? He is surely talking to someone else. Okay? He's not talking to himself. He's not saying... Self, with you all things are possible if my will be done. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere, right? It doesn't make any sense. So the whole New Testament narrative presents us with these three who are distinct enough from one another to talk to one another, to interact with one another, to be sent, which is a crucial concept, by one another. Not all can be sent by all, but um, the Father sends the Son, the Son and the Father send the Spirit. So they're not simply three different ways of looking at the same thing. So in these three claims then, one God, Son and Spirit are true God, Father, Son and Spirit are truly distinct, to put it in very compressed terms. 
This is the heart of what the creed wants to say. And this is the heart of Christian faith in God. Of the faith of Christians for many centuries, this is the God that we worship and in whom we believe. Now a question comes up, which no doubt has already occurred to you. How can these three be one? There's a passage in the first letter of John which is textually disputed in John 5. John 5, 7 to be precise. The, the original text is hard to identify, but the traditional text in the West, in the Vulgate and the Latin Bible of the West was, there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, it's probably not the, the best Greek text of 1 John 5, 7. That was a debate um, uh, maybe 100 years ago rather intensely um, as to whether that's really what the text says. But that's the issue, all right? These three are one. Okay, how so? How shall we understand what we believe? And uh, as I suggested at the beginning, Christians have, from the get-go, wanted to understand what they believe. They wanted to enter in with their minds as well as their hearts, again, to the mystery of what we believe. That doesn't mean we'll get to the bottom of it in this life, but we can enter into it. We don't simply, with our minds, we don't simply walk away from it and say, okay, these three are one, that's interesting, I won't talk about that in math class, um, and I'll just go on. Rather, we, uh, we want to try and understand this to the extent that we can. In one of the most important texts of Christian reflection on the Trinity uh, in the tradition, uh, St. Augustine, writing in the early 400s, uh, says this. Uh, he formulates the issue with great, uh, with great precision. Um, there's a typo there. It shouldn't say the God. It should just say God. Um, God is the Father, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet we say, which means we hold to be true, that this supreme trinity is not three gods, but one God. The Father is all that it is to be God. The Son is all that it is to be God. The Holy Spirit is all that it is to be God. These three are not one another, but they are the one God. How shall we understand this? Okay. So there's the question which Christians have been thinking about for about 2,020 years. I'll, um, I'll do what I can with it in the next uh, 15 minutes, okay? Um, the creed, I think, helps us address the question or start thinking about the question that it poses to us, all right? So it gives us these three basic claims which are difficult to bring together to see how they add up. But the creed has more to say. Let's start from the last of the three issues that I mentioned, that Father, Son, and Spirit are really different, really distinct from one another. How do we understand that? 
Well, the creed says that the sun, okay, we're about four lines into the, into the second paragraph, right? So I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Go down three more lines. God from God. And then the next line, true God from true God. Light from light. So how is the Son distinct from the Father? So that he can, for example, when he becomes flesh, pray to the Father by being from him. This may seem shatteringly obvious, or maybe it's puzzling, but it's a very fundamental relationship, right? You're not from yourself. No matter what delusions of grandeur you have, you are not your own maker, right? You're not from yourself. You are from another, actually, I assume, two others, okay? Nothing is from itself. So if you're from, you're from another than yourself. The Father is not from anything, okay? The Father just is. The Son and the Spirit are from the Father. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God from God, and so he must be distinct from the Father. So we can begin to get a little sense of how this distinction works. It's not just any sort of distinction. It's not just, just like you have three apples in front of you and you count them as three. We count Father, Son, and Spirit as three, absolutely. They are three persons, as the tradition will say. I'll come to that in a minute. But they're not related as you know three apples, which might come from three different trees, are related. Rather, the Son is from the Father, and therefore is distinct from him in a, in a specific way by being from him. Likewise, farther on down, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, proceeds or comes forth from the Father and the Son. So how are these three distinct from one another in their eternal primordial relationship as Father, Son, and Spirit? They're distinct in that. What makes them three is that the Son is from the Father and the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. In the Western version of the Creed, we talked about that in our seminar this morning. All right, we can leave that aside for the moment. So there's a set of relationships among these three which belongs to who they are. It's who God is, in fact that these three are not just randomly connected to each other like they take up the same space, but one is from the other and the third is from the two. So the creed teaches, and this is about as basic a point as we can make in trying to understand our faith in the Trinity. The creed teaches, as I put it in the outline uh, somewhat crudely, there is fromness in God. Within the reality of the one God, there are relationships such that one is from another. God is not a sort of pure monad. God is not a pure, undifferentiated something. Right? 
Rather, in God there is one who is from another and a third who is from both. Now in the fourth century already these three, the one who is the origin of the other two, the Father, the Son who is generated or begotten in the language of the Creed from the Father, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So generating is one thing, proceeding is another. That's an important distinction which we can maybe go into uh, in the discussion. These three are best thought of as persons, which is to say individuals, or in Greek, hypostases, which Greek is, uh, hypostasis is just Greek for individual, okay? Uh, rendered into Latin early in the history of Christianity as persona or, or person, okay? The creed does not use this language. The creed does not speak of persons. It just calls the three by their proper names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how is, we're again thinking about the third point, that the three are not the same as each other. They're distinct from each other. How are they distinct? How is the Son other than the Father? He is other than the Father by being from him, but from him in an utterly unique fashion. From him so as to be another person, but not another God. From him so as to be another hypostasis, but not another God. So there is fromness in God, but there is not multiplication of gods. God does not multiply God. He multiplies the person. The Father brings forth the persons of the Son and in a different way of the Holy Spirit. So if we can understand this fromness that the creed attributes to God, that the Son is from the Father and the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, maybe we can begin to get a little bit of a grip on our faith in the Trinity. A more familiar term for what I'm calling uh, fromness or being from is origination. Or you could also say emanation. These terms have all been used in the theological, uh, Catholic theological tradition to think about this also in, in classic Protestant theology. So there is origination in God. There are two kinds of origination, as I was saying a moment ago. The Son is from the Father as begotten by the Father or generated. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son as proceeding from the Father and the Son. The terminology here can be a little confusing because the term procession or proceeding I was asked to highlight this point, so um, I can't remember which one of, we, of you it was that asked me to, to make sure I talked about this, but now I'm talking about it, okay? So it says the Holy Spirit proceeds, but the term proceeding can also be used to speak of any generation or coming forth. Sorry, let me drop the term generation for the sake of clarity. The term proceeding can be used for any coming forth in God, for any origination. 
So St. Thomas, for example, when he begins his long series of questions about the Trinity in the Summa Theologia says, are there processions in God? Okay, and he says, yes, there are two. All right? But then it's also the case that procession is a unique thing that belongs to the Holy Spirit alone and not to the Son. The Son is generated and does not proceed. So the terminology can be a little confusing. But to avoid that confusion, uh, or at least to skirt it uh, in the language we use, we can just say that there are two forms of origination in God. One which goes with the Son, that's generation, and one which goes with the Holy Spirit, that's procession, and that's the language of the creed. How is it then that the Son and the Spirit come forth from the Father in eternity in the unalterable being of God? How do they come forth from the Father so as to be, so we're going to the next level of questioning, right? So as to be another person but not another God. And the Creed offers an answer. It's in the line, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. That one sentence crystallizes an intense century of debate about this question. How is it that the Son is true God, just as the Father is, and yet is not the Father, and yet we worship one God, not two gods? And the answer of the creed and of the Catholic tradition, and of the classic Protestant tradition as well, is because he comes forth, the Son and the Spirit come forth, so as to be consubstantial. So as to be another person, not another God. Well, consubstantial is perhaps not a word you use in your everyday speech, okay? Um, are you feeling consubstantial today? Um, are you consubstantial with one another? Um, might sound a little bit, uh, a little bit scary. Um, the Greek term here, again, I'm glad I have uh, the board. Here's homo usion. Homo means the same, and usia means essence or, uh, or substance. Substance is what a thing is. So when it says that the Son comes forth begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, this was the most debated point in the whole argument about the creed in the fourth century. Okay? Of the very same godness or divinity as the Father. Not a second godness or divinity, a second divine essence or nature next to that of the Father. But the Father imparts, or if you like, shares his own single divinity with the Son whom he brings forth, the Son whom he generates. He comes forth begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Now, there's a model for this in human affairs. The language that is applied to the the Son here in the Creed, but is also understood to apply to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, too, is consubstantial with the Father and with the Son. The language of generation or begetting, also perhaps terms we don't use uh, in our daily speech, um, uh, 
have you begotten um, anything lately? Um, perhaps not language we regularly use, but what, what is being referred to here um, is uh, reproduction, okay? Is generation um, literally uh, what, what, um, what creatures do to make another creature of that kind, okay? They generate, right? So in human affairs, and indeed in all animal affairs, um, I'm not much for, for these um, more rigorous scientific matters, so maybe in, in plant affairs, I don't know. Um, but in, in animal affairs, you have one human being who, together with another human being, produces a third human being, right? So what's going on here? How do we think about this in relation to this business about being consubstantial? So for the sake of, of, of simplicity, let's say a mother gives birth to a son. So the mother is a human being, and the son is a second human being, right? The mother is a person, and the son is another person, okay? So what's happening here? The mother, now of course it also requires a father, but the mother is giving human nature, human substance, in the language of the creed, human usia or essence, they all mean the same thing for our purposes. The mother is giving her humanity to her son, right? But of course it's not an exact replication of her humanity. It's full humanity so the son is as much a her son is as much a human being as she is, but it's a humanity that also has lots of differences in its when you take it as a whole from the humanity of the mother. Okay, for example, the mother is a woman and the child is a boy. All right, so there's a difference there. What the creed is doing is picking up, when it speaks of generation or begetting, that's the, that's the model, okay? Or that's the creaturely analog or comparison is the mother or father bringing forth the child as another possessor of human nature or human essence, okay? And the church fathers use this, this quite explicitly, okay? Um, uh, and we'll, we'll talk, you know, precisely about the way in which the gen generation in, in, um, uh, of human beings and generation in God are similar and also different, okay? So how are they similar, right? We're, try we're trying to un understand consubstantial, right? And that's where we're going to end, right? <laughs> trying to understand consubstantial. How are they similar? Well, what's similar is that when the mother brings forth the son, she imparts human nature from herself to the son. 
she shares, if you like, her human nature with another. When the father generates the son or begets the son in the language of the creed from all eternity, he shares his divine nature with another. He imparts his divine nature to another. So that's a similarity. Okay? But there's also a huge difference. Because when one human being imparts human nature to another, they not only bring forth another person, they bring forth another human being. Not only another individual, but another instance of human nature distinct from the human nature that is possessed by the mother. Right? So this isn't as complicated as I might be making it seem. So we say quite fundamentally and naturally, the mother is one human being and the son is another human being. The mother is one person, the son is another person. The mother is one human being, the son is another human being. Person is the individual, mother is one individual, the son is another individual. Human being is the kind or nature, one human being, another human being. In God, it's not like this. Okay? God is transcendent to creaturely reality. The way things are in God is not the way they are in creatures. So the Son comes forth from the Father in a way that is in one sense similar, that the divine nature is given to the Son, but in another sense is absolutely different. Because the Son is not given by the Father, the Son does not receive from the Father a second humanity, or, or divinity, sorry, a second divinity alongside the divinity of the Father, the way the human son receives a second humanity alongside the humanity of the mother. It's the very same divinity, the Father's own godness, the Father's own divine substance, which is now possessed by, belongs to the Son as well as the Father. So the crucial difference is that in human affairs, one person begets or generates, brings forth a second person and a second human being. In God, the Father brings forth a second person, the Son, but not a second God. Not, does not bring about a second divinity, which then belongs to the Son, the way human parents bring about a humanity, which now belongs to their child, and which is not their humanity. So that's at least one step toward a, um, a, an understanding uh, of what we believe when we get up on Sundays and other feast days um, and find our way through the creed. And, um, I hope that the next time um, you get up and utter the creed, um, some things will stand out for you uh, that haven't uh, stood out before. I'm happy to talk about this as long as you all want to, and, and thanks so much for being here and for listening. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.